0: You down with DND. Yeah you know me. We 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 down with DND. Yeah you know me. I'm down with DND. Yeah you know me. We down with DND. Are you ready to get down with some DND? I know I am and I am joined as I am always joined by the magnificent, marvelous old school here, mad uh, magnificent marvelous mad wizard merwin Was there a third one there i always forget what the, the original third one was
1: i don't even remember that's how old i
0: am methuselah how about that <laughs> sure the methuselah mad wizard merwin hey chris how's it going um welcome to down with dnd that's good it's good for you folks out there in listener land welcome to down with dnd this is episode 135 we're going to talk about initiative and modes of play sean uh what's up man uh we are getting ready for Winter Fantasy, and boy are my arms tired from all the typing. <laughs> I am printing out my mods that I have to run there. I am, I've gotten batteries, and for my microphone, I have got my clothes all kind of set aside and packed up. Uh, when you all hear this out there on the podcast, it will be over. Winter Fantasy will have been in the past, but for me and Sean, it's in the future still.
1: That's right. It's the magic of podcasting.
0: Mm-hmm. uh linear podcast time non-linear podcast time that's that, what we that's call right. it around these parts yep. that's right <laughs> well like i mentioned we're going to talk about initiative and modes of play today but before that let's get into a few news and announcements sean the newest book has been re- uh, announced it's called Mordenkind's tome not Tomb, as the error was on the on the re- initial release sorry, but tome of foes
1: yeah there was a little whoopsie there but this, this is big news uh, people this is what we wait for you know once or twice or three times a year to hear what the next book is going to be, and in this case, it is Borden Canaan's Tome of foes*, as Chris said. We have three different links to three different videos that are up where you can hear more about what will be in this book. Uh, one from Mike Merles, uh, one from Mike Merles and Nathan Stewart, and then another that was will be on Dragon Talk uh, with Kate Irwin, and I always forget the Rules Guy's name.
0: Well, I don't know who it is. Oh, I, there's a rules guy. Yeah, he's the
1: Crawford. yeah he's the sage. Talking uh, about,
0: you're talking about Crawford?
1: Yeah, Jeremy Crawford. Thank you. I always oh, I okay. can never remember his name, and he's the nicest guy in the world. Um, and I can see his face, and I just listened to his video. Uh, he, uh, Kate, and and Jeremy talked about what's in the book as well. So for those of you who haven't seen the news, here's what's in it. Uh, it is going to be structurally similar to Volo's Guide to Monsters. So part of the book will be lore and then another part will be the rules portion where you get stat blocks and things like that um now what mike Merles talked about was volo's guide did very well um and so they wanted to do something similar without having it be the same they didn't want to make volo's two basically so what they mm-hmm. decided was to um for various reasons that Mike talks about, they were going to focus on large conflicts. So the first thing they thought about was who, like Volo, could talk about this, and they settled on on Mordenkanen, who is, from the Greyhawk setting, um, basically the leader of a cabal of wizards called the Council of Eight. Council of Eight? Something of Eight. Anyway, it was eight high-level wizards who kind of kept an eye on the world. So... He is focused, uh, as Mike said, on balance. I think he was neutral uh, in in first edition. So he wasn't good. He wasn't evil. He was more worried about power. So what he did in this book is, Mordenkainen that is, is look at the large conflicts uh, in D&D. So he's talking about Drow versus the rest of the elves. He's talking about the Gith versus the Mind Flayers. Uh, He's talking about the Blood War those kind of large-scale uh, conflicts that inform D&D and have informed D&D throughout the years. The second thing he talked about was there has been a call for higher-level monsters and higher-level stories. And now that we're four or five years into 5th edition, it's maybe time to focus on that. So the, uh, the monsters, half the monsters in the book, give or take, will be CR 10 or higher giving uh dms and players who want to play those tier three and tier four adventures some fodder and he's he also mentioned that even if your campaign doesn't go that high if you're even if you stop at level 10 some of the content in here will be great as background material for your campaign so you might only play tier one and tier two but the blood war can still be a great backdrop for your campaign um that was me, that was the quick and dirty version of what all of these different videos have talked about.
0: To me, it's all about the gith versus the mind flayers. There you go. I mean, I I love that because one, it generally takes place out in the uh, the astral sea, mm-hmm. so I mean that makes me happy, and I like that kind of stuff a lot. And it's the gith and the mind flayers, which are two of my favorite. Uh, races slash creature types in dungeons and dragons so i'm very excited about this book
1: yep and so with all the things that we're talking about the blood war which is the demons versus the devils or as chris talked about the the gith versus the mind players on the astral plane we're talking cosmic now um, rather than just confined to one material plane so with all of this talk of cosmic uh content and with high-level monsters people are starting to get excited and the word planescape is being thrown around by a lot of fans who assume that if this book is any indication of what might follow that planescape might be in the offing we don't know if that would be amazing yeah we don't know if this is true or not but uh it's something that's out there on the rumor mill uh and jeremy did mention that the shadow fell also gets some attention in this book, and there will be several new monsters um that have been created just for fifth edition that deal with the shadow fell
0: you know i'm I'm okay with that and I, I like that too, but when am I going to get me a book that gets more into the Feywild? wild because man, I love me some fairies mm-hmm. and uh I think we need more f- more Fey. In in D and D and and more better described Fey that aren't just about killing and whatnot but are about scheming and dealing and all that good stuff. Yeah,
1: the, I mean when when we uh, when we did Return of the Lizard King, that's why I wanted to set the the lower level stuff there is because it's such an interesting place and in D and D lore it it actually touches our world. It's not quite as separate. There there's there's a lot of bleed between the Feywild and and the material world, and so I'm always interested in that as well and. Uh, Jeremy mentioned in his interview that they did quite a few fey creatures in Volos, even if they didn't do a specific book on the Feywild.
0: So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about concerning this book?
1: Let's see. um, they, They mentioned that they wanted new players to be able to pick this book up and not be lost, which I think is a very important thing, because in the past we've heard stories about people who came into the game five years in, and the books on the shelves would say Monster Manual 3 or Player's Handbook 2 or Dungeon Master's Guide 2. And they would pick those up rather than picking up you know, the original core books and get frustrated because they d- didn't know what was going on. So I think that we see that something that's always in the back of, of the mind of Wizards now is if a new player picks this up, we need to give them something that can draw them into the game just as if they were picking up the Player's Hand.
0: Now, I think that... 5th edition D&D has always done a very good job of that in general, especially with these new books they, they put out um, Xanathar's Guide to Everything and Volo's Guide to Monsters mm-hmm. because all the monster sections, they felt like sort of a 101 on these monster types to give you a base idea of like how they kind of function in the world, what their role is, what their place is, and some interesting story and game hooks for those things so I, I expect that this will be very similar in that uh, vein and it will be pretty good Yep.
1: And it's interesting to me to contrast Volos with with this new book, because for me, even as far back as first edition, there's always been two main sources of the stories I've wanted to tell as a DM. One was the very specific. So I would read about a dragon's lair or a kobold's lair. And I would think of all the cool stories that could come from that. Very specific, very concrete thing that's described as being there's a twenty percent chance that in the cobalts layer there will be two giant weasels, you know, and, and these sorts of things were interesting to me. And then on the other hand, you have the general, these big uh, cosmic stories that you can start from and then build a story down from. And to me, Volos was the specific, uh, you know, where you're talking about all the very uh, gritty details of these monsters and then to me this new book not having seen it could talk about the general you know the blood war and those sorts of things and then take that cosmic story and give uh dms the chance to create their content um you know with that as the impetus
0: now i wonder um i i love that idea too and i'm just thinking of about those general stories because we mentioned um you mentioned the Elser's, the Drow, the bloodborn the Githrus, the mind Flayers. like i wonder if the uh, mishka the wolf spider and the the queen of chaos with the rod of seven parts oh. is going to be in there versus the the, the wind the wind lords of aquin
1: yeah yep that would be sweet the duke the wind dukes a, of aquin yeah yep cuz that's a great another great story that many many adventures have sprung from
0: Mm-hmm. I keep waiting for the big book that's going to be the Rod of Seven Parts adventure. I, 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 it's got to be coming at some point in the next five years.
1: <laughs> and if not, it should be up on the DMs Guild by someone.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, that's Mordenkine's Tome of Foes. Let's move on to the second thing that we wanted to talk about, which is Alan Patrick and Lisa Chen, who are on Dragon Talk. And Lisa Chen's been on Dragon Talk a bunch of times now. Lisa Chen's pretty much all over the place, which is great, because she's wonderful.
1: Yep, and uh, she's been on our show, but I think there may be a a slight grudge now between Lisa and uh, Wolfgang Bauer. They have both been on Dragon Talk three times. (gasps) And as far as we can tell, they are in the lead for non-wizards, uh, guests on dragon talk so uh there could be a showdown at some point but we you know we've already talked about the other adventures league administrators uh having been on the show and uh i think it was last week as at the time of this recording that alan and lisa were on and they really had an interesting conversation and so if if you're into the adventures league i would go check that out on the twitch channel the D D twitch channel um, it should be out on the Dragon Talk podcast in a week or so.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and even if you're not into the Adventures League, they did talk about some pretty interesting things. They talked about the atmosphere for your games. Um, they talked about advice for getting new players into the game. And they, they went into specific detail about the Red War, which is something that I've been waiting for for organized play for the Adventures League for a long time, which is something that the players have just created on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided, uh, Some players decided that they didn't like what was going on in Mallmaster, which is the Red Wizards of Thay are basically rebuilding the city mm-hmm. and g- gaining a very strong foothold there. And the Emerald Enclave, one of the factions, did not like this. So they put up a letter saying that we are not going to allow this to happen we will go mm-hmm. to war. And then other factions chimed in and said, well, wait, "Well, well, wait a minute. We need this town city to be rebuilt for for trade purposes." So people like the Zentarum and the Lords Alliance are like, "Well, maybe we do need them too." And so this whole in-character Uh, meeting of the minds, and clash of the factions is happening on Facebook. And now it's spread elsewhere. And these are the sorts of things that when it happens, you know that an organized play campaign has started to breathe on its own. And and while it does need to be watched carefully, uh, it also needs to be encouraged and expanded upon to let these sorts of stories drive the campaign as much as the administrators or the writers do. So that's a very it's a very cool thing that's happening. You can hear about it uh, at their interview or if you're on the Adventures League Facebook uh, groups, you will probably have already heard about it.
0: That is awesome. I love when stuff like Mm -hmm. that happens, right? Like it's so exciting.
1: (laughs) It is. And so hopefully we will see more of that and we'll keep an eye on that and do uh, some more reporting uh, as as we learn more.
0: All right, let us get on to our main topic for the day, which is initiative, seamless play, modes of play, and other goodness. And uh, I just want to say thank you, Jared Rasher and others in the Down d and G Plus community for getting this discussion started. So Jared wrote, totally random, quick initiative idea. One creature in the opposition is the DC for the check, 10 plus initiative bonus. Anyone that meets or exceeds goes before all the creatures, anyone that rolls lower goes after you only track before or after, and this spawned several discussions that are separate but related and um, you know some of it was heated, some of it was not it was it was really enjoyable, but much of this discussion revolved around the idea of game flow, table management, and different modes of play. There was also a section that got uh, moved around that was more about um mean we were talking about game flow, but that broke down into uh, the idea of cognitive task switching which we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that later. Yep. So what are, where are we going to start with this, Sean? So let's start with, at the very highest
1: level, we talk about this all the time, but whenever we discuss rules for a game, whether it be D&D or other role-playing games, or other board games, or any sort of game, we need to say this. Put this in all caps. Game rules have consequences that reach far beyond that mere rule. Uh-huh. So when you make a change to a rule, you are affecting not just what that rule covers, but everything else about the system around it, whether it be a rule set or a machine or a computer program or whatever.
0: Yeah. Can can we just talk about that for a second? Let's. So game rules, something like initiative, is a mechanism in a game system. Systems are like the big machines. The the, the uh, idea of initiative is like a cog that you put in the machine. When you pull out that cog and put it in a different cog, your machine's going to run differently. And <laughs> D&D is nice in that my opinion. It is not a per se singular game. It is a bunch of pick up and put together parts that you can build a game out of and in fact as you're playing the game if you want different tones and feels you can remove pieces and put different pieces in to get different feelings so like you can go from playing theory of the mime one moment which has a different feel in combat than if you decide to drop down a map with a grid and like use the actual precise movement rules i mean both are awesome ways to play but they have very different feels that's right. And in some
1: ways D and D is very good at saying if you pull this system out and put this system in, this is what will happen. And in some ways it's not, because it is a very large and complicated machine that even sometimes the people creating it don't understand um the consequences of actions. Very true. And I, I'm including myself in that. So uh one thing that game designers must do is look at the long term impact of different rules or the impact if you make a change to a rule. Mm-hmm. So that brings us then around to let's talk about just plain initiative.
0: Absolutely. So you want to start with Jared's idea? Sure. Okay, cool. So Sean, I think you would not use this initiative, right? I would. I, I think the rule
1: itself that Jared said is fine, mm-hmm. which is basically just a DC blank check based on the monster's speed, yeah, uh, you know, or dexterity to make a roll. If you make the check. You go before the monsters. If you fail the check, you go after the monsters. Pretty good. Um, It makes sense. I I don't hate it. I would not use that rule, not because the rule itself is bad, but because of everything else that happens around it. And this has to do with game flow and table management. Mm -hmm. So when I have run games where I didn't set a specific order for everyone, but specifically for the players sometimes it devolved into more discussion than actual play at the table so I would say all right it's you it's the t- players turn you guys decide what to do and what I would instantly get is everyone saying well you stand here no I can't stand there because if I stand here then he's gonna do that and you know a minute two minutes five minutes later The players are still discussing tactics and who's best to go first or who best to go last rather than just making the decision and playing the game um, as, as the initiative system would have them be. You have to make a decision. You have to do something. Go.
0: Now, can we talk about that for a second? Can I talk about that for a second? I would love you to talk about that, Chris. All right. You just described side initiative. I mean, you're talking about side initiative. In, in, in that right. idea. And and Jared's idea actually devolves eventually into sort of side initiative because um, what I got from the initial, like, you either go before or you go after. Well, once the first time the monsters go, really it's everyone's going after. It's just that you've kind of delineated that there's only a certain set of people that can go after, and then another group. You basically have three groups, right? You have player group one, monster group, player group two. Yep. Now, um, that is a little bit more granular than just straight up side initiative which is what you described which that creates a specific kind of play which is the play that you just talked about like it's a very tactical team oriented play like and and it's like i think tactical is right. where it's tactical or strategic i get them confused all the time somebody can correct me because we're going to as a team figure out what are our best and most efficient ways to deal with said situation like who's going to do what let's go in that order everybody can set each other up um, it's fun to play that way if that's the kind of game that you want. Like, I actually don't have a problem with that. Like, what you described, Sean, sounded like it's like that was not what I was expecting, Like what, what you were expecting out of play because of the, the, the standard initiative system. So, right. of course, there's a subversion of expectations. But if you play with that expectation to begin with, then mm-hmm. you are playing what would, I would consider a more tactical game of D&D. Now, the initiative system as it's actually written is very much about um, constraining your choices because you are an individual that goes at a specific time, in the order. And because of there's no more um, initiative bumping around in fifth edition, like you can't shift your initiative spot. Like the ready action matters a lot. Like if you're going to use that one, it's also um, pretty limited because you can only use an action if I remember correctly when you take the to action. That is correct. So like you can't move and then hit. So, yeah, that's all about making choices, and you only have your action economy with which to make the choice, and really you're only making the choice for yourself. Like, you can look around and see who's coming up in initiative and and try to set stuff up, but if there's monsters in between your turns, then you don't really have um, a whole lot that you can do. And even if you and somebody else are going one after the other in the initiative order, like, you still have to go according to rules as written before them unless you're ready in action. So that creates a very more individualized style of play. And I like that uh, as a as a as a play too. Like it's harder to work together, but it, it, you have to think about it a little bit more to work together in a different way. Like you're like, well, it's my turn. What am I going to do? And that, but those two modes of play that or styles of play that I just described are very different based on the kind of initiative system that right. you and
1: use. I am not saying that a very tactical game is not fun, but I am saying, a if you have a group of players who are not tactically minded, who are shy or who are not used to tactical play to force that upon them can be a problem
0: or yeah I, I might even go ahead i might even say that um it's not as much of a tactical like they're both tactical mm-hmm. games um they're different kinds of tactical games because one of them encourages much more discussion and teamwork um and and the other one does too but they're on a scale right there's a there's a sliding scale to that that tactical that that, that discussion part that's what i'm really getting right. at
1: and if you do have one one player who is uh, a dominant personality, it can almost then turn into that one player telling everyone what to do.
0: Yep, that's a problem. Like, that can be a thing.
1: So y- you you have to be aware of that. Another uh, issue is time. If you are running a, a convention game where you have to finish in two hours and you do that sort of let everyone talk about everything um, – then you start to run the risk of the discussion taking too long and not being able to finish the game on time. So all of these things go, you know, go into just this one little meh. How are we going to handle initiative? Uh, can can balloon into large, a larger also issue? Also,
0: as a designer, can make you be like, what kind of game do I want my players right. playing? The players of my game playing. So, right. and then you can make other design choices around right. that. And there will be times if things are getting chaotic at
1: my table. When we're outside of of combat, if there is some sort of negotiation going on and everyone is jumping in and trying to get their point of view said and and I'm having trouble sorting everything out, I will go into initiative outside of combat and say, everyone Mm -hmm. give me persuasion checks. Whoever gets the highest persuasion Mm -hmm. check, you talk first. Or, if I want to do it that way, whoever has the highest persuasion check, you talk last because that's going to be the most... uh, you know, the most memorable point made will be the last one made, probably, um, or give them a Makes choice do you want to talk first or last you know those, those sorts of things. so initiative can also be used just as as a uh as a table management tool absolutely
0: all right, uh, you want to talk about modes of play now uh
1: yes, yes our notes are kind of scrambled <laughs> around, but I think modes of play sounds good next.
0: Alright, so the first question is, are there really different modes of play? And the answer to that question is emphatically yes. There are different modes of play. Uh, In D&D, there is, you know, they, they talk about those three pillars, but there's actually... Rule sets that kind of get dropped in and out with those mm-hmm. pillars, I suppose, which are design goals, right? But they also have modes of play. Which there's a combat mode of play, and there is a uh, exploration mode of play. Now they can go together, and they can be mixed. You can have these different kinds of beats, as you've heard me talk about beats before, story beats, mixed together, um, especially with interaction in in any of those kind of uh, either exploration or combat. Which I think exploration and combat they um they they don't happen as often together. Uh, they can. Uh, there's ways that it can happen. It's not. It's not the, quite the same. But um, interaction definitely gets mixed into those kind of things. So there are there are different modes of play. They have different rule sets associated with them. Um, and that is that is how you kind of kind of delineate when you're in a specific mode of play is what kind of rules right. you're using.
1: And that's why these pillars came into effect in the first place. Um, you know, this the way we play Fifth Edition didn't come from those pillars. Those pillars came from the way that previous editions of D and D and other role-playing games have been played. Um, because mm-hmm. one of the points that was made is, I like rolling initiative because that lets everyone know we are entering a different mode of play, and and yeah. it, you know it's it's true, and you don't have to say that role-playing is separate from combat. But depending on your definition of role-playing and combat, it's definitely two different things.
0: Um, I don't think that role-playing, as far as the uh, the storytelling part of it, has to be separate from combat in any way, shape, or form. I think they can go together. I think there is an argument to be made that maybe those are, when we talk about uh, task switching, which I'll talk about in a bit, Like there, there's an argument to be made that those are simple tasks that you switch back and forth from, or it could be just a complex task, which, well, I'll get into that a little later, but... Um, I, I think my point,
1: my, my point there was, there defining these things uh, is necessary to start talking about them all on the same page. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Sure. Because D and D is a role playing game, so while you are doing a combat, you are role playing. Yeah. But there is a mode of play called that people will call role playing that is separate from
0: combat. It is definitely a distinct mode. So let's talk about this for a second then. So, because I think Because I think that rules are tied to these, these modes of play, right? Rules modules. So the role-playing part, the interaction part, um, there is very few rules that are tied to that. Maybe a skill check, maybe a spell or two that, that enhances or uh, alters those kinds of interactions. But there's not a whole lot of rules that get attached to interaction. Does that sound about right? That sounds exactly right. All right. Now let's talk about exploration because that's another one of the pillars. Now, when we're exploring stuff, we are specifically almost um, completely using skill checks and our gear as characters, to to and, and our resources. Sorry, because spells are a resource also sure. to get around, learn information, move uh, move through areas, overcome obstacles that get in our way, deal with traps, deal with hazards, things like that. That is almost primarily, as far as the core mechanics go um skill checks, maybe saving throws when you trigger a trap. Um and 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 use of spells and clever play and equipment and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, let's take it up one more level uh, or not not really up, but to a different to a different space, to combat. Now, when you're using combat, you're going to drop an initiative, you're going to drop an action economy. Um you're going to drop in the attack roll. And now, you could technically use the attack roll in exploration too when it is required, but most of the time, the attack roll is in the domain of combat. So those rule modules now get dropped in on top of that, and that's how you know that you're in that mode of play. Now, combat uses all the other pieces that I've talked about already, too. It's just that you keep adding more and more stuff as you go through this, which is why you can have interaction during combat, and you can have interaction during exploration. In fact, you can have exploration during combat. You can have interaction and exploration during combat. So... Um D and D, as it I see it designed, is this complete and total um, ladder of building things into the most complex part of the game, which I believe is combat. Mm-hmm.
1: well I, I think if you look at it I, I agree with you. I think if you look at it this way, you're a player um, you, you you die, your character dies during combat. it happens right mm-hmm. Your character dies during exploration. Oh boy! I must have really failed three or four saving throws in a row to have that happen, right? <laughs> yeah. You you die. Your character dies during role playing. You're probably going on to Facebook and complaining about your DM at that point, right? Um, so just looking at it from that in, from that sense, um, di- there's definitely different modes of play.
0: <laughs> uh huh. That's a good example. Actually, it's kind of funny. <laughs> you died during interaction. Um, did you insult right. the demon? i mean make a roll right. make a saving throw <laughs> exactly oh, you
1: know you 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 call the king uh you know some sort of horrible name and the within sight within hearing range of a guard um you know he he uh he kills you for you know treason or whatever uh, yeah yeah that that you 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 generally don't don't accept that as a player too well
0: no not so much not so much what do you mean? I've been arrested, drawn and quartered. Oh, <laughs> I, I
1: had one more question. Um, the the whole sure. The whole initiative uh, issue came up because we were talking about seamless transition to combat. Yes. Um, so, is is there such a thing as a seamless transition to combat? Is, and and uh, if there is, or if there isn't, is that something we should even be trying for? Um, obviously, based on player types player preferences game types game preferences all that um you know it, that's an interesting question of of should it be and so, and some people have said absolutely there should be because as soon as i say role initiative all my players start paying extra close attention uh, some people are you know want there to be less as the misdirected mark podcast would call it latency hmm. you know between between one mode of play and another mode of play
0: there in 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 Dungeons and Dragons, in the fifth edition version of Dungeons and Dragons, there is no seamless transition mm-hmm. because of the rules modules that you drop in. Um, now that that phrase "roll for initiative" has a lot of psychological weight to it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When you say that, it means we're going to fight. There is a there is a definitive switch between what you were doing before and what you are doing now you're not actually masking anything because psychology is a thing in in game design like how can we trick ourselves into playing games in certain ways like the rules should help with some of that but they don't in in D &D because i just talked about all that rules dropping in that we have to do in order to have different modes of play um if you get away from saying let's roll for initiative or you have initiative that goes quicker or sometimes that can help with that but Or if you're like, all right, we're in a fight. What do you do? You're first. And then after that, I mean, you don't have to say it that way. Like, he swings his sword at you. What do you do? Like, that means, like, I would roll my attack roll for the monster, and then I basically pass it to the player character. And then the player character, I can be like, all right, pick somebody else to go. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm using a very different kind of initiative system, but that creates a more, I don't know, past the sticky storytelling-ish kind of play, I suppose. Right. Um. That is a way to make it seamless, but still you drop in those rules and it becomes not seamless. I will contrast this now with another game that has the same kind of mechanics for everything that you do. Dungeon World has the same kind of mechanics for everything you do. it's always the the same thing, so you can actually seamlessly transition between a fight and a conversation and exploration. Now I'm not saying that's better or worse because I love all these games. I don't think it's better or worse. I just think it's a play style and a, and a, and a mechanic's preference. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that I get to drop in a bunch of rules in D&D and play that game that way. Yep. But that's what happens when you design games in different ways. They provide different experiences.
1: So when, when when we hear people say that they want a seamless transition, maybe what we're actually hearing is I don't want the procedures of rolling initiative, counting everyone's Uh, you know marking it down either on a board or on cards or, or or over your your dm screen or however you do it you don't want that to take as much time because that takes away from the actual playing of the game that kind of administrative technical stuff
0: mind if i use another set of misdirected mark terms let's do it chris uh we call them layers we call them layers of play like there is the character layer. You're playing a character. There is the story layer. You're telling stories. There is the game layer. You're interacting with mechanics. There are a bunch of other layers, like um, the out of game layer, like when you're talking about ordering pizza and things like that. The, uh, um, and and, there, and a few other layers. But like you can go and find that episode. Which if you go to the the website, it's uh, one of the ones listed in the uh, you know top 11 misdirected mark episodes ever. You can just listen to that and, and get all that stuff. But for our discussion, um, character story and game are the ones that we really want to focus on because mm-hmm. what those people that want a seamless transition want they want to stay more in the character story level and they don't want to deal with the game they they want the game level to interfere with that as much they want it mm-hmm. to be minimized right that, that's my opinion that's what I think people want yeah. when they're talking about seamless play or playing yep. more in in being more immersed I guess immersive play mm-hmm. um, okay and and again,
1: there's nothing wrong. We can have a
0: discussion about that sometime.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with either. There's nothing wrong with wanting to to stay in that sort of narrative in character mode. And there's nothing wrong with being more than happy to step over into the kind of more mechanical, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, the combat part, where it's it's more. Um, yeah. It's it's just more mechanical, and that's okay. That's a fun game too.
0: Yeah, and it the most important thing about this conversation to me is that just because you drop in the extra rules that doesn't mean you stop doing the other things because you're putting stuff on top of it like the interaction, the role play, I suppose interaction is really about talking to people. That's what interaction is. But the role playing, the storytelling, that doesn't stop when you drop in rules like it just doesn't. It doesn't have to. You can choose to stop if you want, but you never have to stop. Like, the rules don't have to be the thing that stops you from from telling the story of how your fighter actually, you know, took seventeen slashes at the thing. I mean, granted, you only rolled three times, but you I mean you can describe it that way. You still did the same amount of damage. You're not changing anything mechanically from saying that your flurry of blows. <laughs> sorry, monks out there, fighters with a flurry of a flurry of sword slashes. My bad doesn't uh, doesn't take away from or change the mechanics of the game. Like it still has that that feel to it. It's just that you want your story to match kind of what's going on with the rules. That's all I'm saying.
1: And a whole other conversation we can have sometime is how to design adventures and encounters to enhance and allow for multiple modes of play. For example, mixing exploration with combat, mixing interaction with combat, to make. Uh, people that like both of those different modes come together uh in a way that 's satisfying for both
0: mm-hmm. and uh yeah and we 'll talk about that some other time Cause I, I thought of like three examples off off the top of my head um The last thing I wanted to talk about because this is another thing that goes with this this layers thing and whatnot and why people might want um more seamless and I put that in quotes play between these modes is this idea between um this idea of task switching. So when you switch tasks while playing a game, when you go from doing the storytelling thing to the, uh, to the engaging with the rules thing, especially if you have to think about it, that's, that takes some sort of cognitive energy. Like it can, and if you do it, if you have to do it too much, or it's too hard to think about certain things, or you don't have all the rules in your head, and then you have to flip through a rule book. Cause that's like, that's also engaging with that kind of stuff. Like we are basically spending energy and creating latency um, between switching between these modes of play. Now, to me, that's simple task switching. Now, I, have, I got into a pretty big discussion, and I was told that my science was not quite right for psychology, which I'm perfectly capable of copying to because I am not an expert in psychology. I do not have a degree in psychology. My degree is in writing. I'm, I'm a storyteller. The other side of that is the idea of complex tasks. So, And I think at some point you're doing this thing as a simple task, and eventually you can get so good that you are basically, you've turned it into a complex task. So complex task. There is a sort of rote thing that you do in in whatever creative endeavor that you're in. Like, for instance, if you're a musician, like you practice, like you run scales, you you train your hands and your fingers, if you're a guitar player, to do certain things. Eventually, you get so good that you don't have to think about it as much. It is more um, ingrained into you. And then you can think more about the musicality, the playing, which is, in our case, for playing role-playing games, the storytelling. So the rules are the technique. And once we get so good with the rules that we don't really have to think about them, we've now turned this thing into a complex task and we are now just playing the game, using the mechanics underneath without having to think about them too much to tell really cool stories. And, um, I'm not sure where you're, I think the idea for all of us that wants to play a specific game, like if we play D and D most of the time, eventually the goal is to go from making it a simple, a set of simple tasks where it's cognitive load and causing latency into a complex task where that stuff is wrote for us and we can just tell really cool stories. Um, I play a lot of games, so it's hard for me to ever get to that kind of mastery. So I am often very aware of how to make these simple tasks easier for me to switch between. So those are the two. Those thoughts, are, I think, are important for this discussion because I think you should all be aware of them. Like Those are things that you should think about and ways to lower your latency and lower your task switching so that you can have a more seamless game if that's the kind of play that you're looking for.
1: Can, can, I, can I try to give an example of what I think you're talking about?
0: Sure, absolutely. Go ahead.
1: It's a pretty it's a pretty simple example. But say you're say you're DMing a game and the the players are, are fighting a group of goblins mm-hmm. and they're hobgoblin leader. And so you're the DM and you're you're keeping track of initiative and the player rolls, says I want to attack the hobgoblin, they roll they say I got a fourteen. If you have to stop, look at the look at the uh actual armor class Figure out, okay, that hits, even though there's cover. Then you have to say, that hits. Then you have to, if you choose, describe what happens because of the hit. Then the player rolls the damage. If you don't have to do the looking, if you don't have to do any of those other things, when that player says 14, you can then say, your arrow strikes the goblin in the chest. How much damage do you do? Then if you don't have to keep track of hit points... Uh, On a piece of paper, you know, all of those things are those tasks that you're talking about, right? Yep, absolutely. If if you can do it all at once without having to do all of those things, then you're creating just one uh, continuous play that at least you as the DM are turning into a complex task that is doable without all the steps.
0: Yeah, you are entering a what um, some people like to call a state of flow. Like you, the flow of your game is so good that you don't really have to worry about the mechanisms of play because you just know them all. Uh, um, you you intuit them all. You just kind of have them all under your fingertips, and that makes um that makes for a very often enjoyable a game experience. Like because you're not focused on necessarily the rules of the game, you're focused on how the rules help enhance the story.
1: Cool. All right, I'm down with that. All right.
0: Anything else? Are we
1: good? I, I think we covered that. I'm, thank you, Jared. Thank you, uh, Randy Farmer, and everybody mm-hmm. who took part in our G-Plus community discussion of this topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, I wanted to say thank you everyone so much for listening, especially these patrons. Toby Sennett, Randy Farmer, John Carney, Victor Wyatt, Garrett Colon, and Eric Simon. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down With D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for a paltry $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for
1: $4.50 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes, and we try to give patrons a little extra every now and then.
0: Mm -hmm. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review.
1: Mm -hmm. Those reviews help us, even if you're not listening via Apple Podcast, because other podcatchers use that to rate and rank shows. And we'd love to have you let us know what you think, uh, give us a rating, and help us become more visible
0: absolutely sean buddy old pal where can we find
1: you on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at sean merwin i'm also on facebook and most of all i love going to the down with D g plus community and having discussions like the one you just heard mm-hmm. how about you chris
0: well you can catch me on twitter at down with dnd or at misdirected mark or at the light 101 or you can just go to the website and leave comments there and listen to other great shows such as this one Zhang Yu Hustle train alongside fellow students Eric Farmer and Eli Kurtz and Zhang Yu Hustle Eric and Eli make their kung fu stronger by watching wushu films and then discussing how to apply their observations to game design
1: Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production the media arm of encoded designs
0: Mm -hmm. so Sean what are we gonna do now we're
1: gonna go kill some monsters in initiative order
0: you're down with D&D yeah you know Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. down with D and D. you down with D and D. I'm down with D and D. down with D and D.